In this last month, we've seen the abuse and murder of black Americans make headlines. Yet you and I know this sin of racism does not only play out in our streets, it is alive and well in our churches. This week, we're taking a break from the pandemic sessions and returning to the regular format of this podcast and listening to leaders involved in starting new faith communities. This was recorded many months ago, but there's no better time than now for this conversation, as we are clearly in need of models of church planting that work against white supremacist tendencies that exist across Western Christian traditions. This is going to be a two-part series where we explore the history and influence of the uniquely American and liberative tradition of Hush Harbors. Here we go. You're listening to A New Thing, a podcast about new faith communities, the leaders that start them, and the individuals and ideas that inform and inspire them. I'm Jason Evans. Why don't we go ahead and just start off with some introductions. Let us know who you are, where you are, and what you're part of Liberating Churches. Who would like to start? I'm going to start. Yeah, I'm Brandon <laughs> Rencher. I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I currently am involved with the ethnographic research for Liberating Church, where we are going around to about five to seven spiritual communities, mainly in North Carolina, but outside of North Carolina too, to, um, yeah, just sort of enter into deep listening with them in conversation about how they are embodying perhaps these eight marks of liberating church that are rooted in our uh, literature review of the Hush Harbors. Um, I also, in general, have been responsible for a lot of the coordination of, of the project from the beginning, pulling together resources for grants and all that, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, and then writing, doing some writing too. So. And we'll get into a definition of you know, what liberating church is and hush harbors and the marks and, and, and those things. Um, are you involved in a local faith community, started a local faith community or anything like that, Brandon? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I am. Um, I've been involved in church planting for a long time, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I don't know. <laughs> trying to figure out if I'm like a glutton for punishment. Um, so so the, the current community that we're planting in Greensboro is called the Good Neighbor Movement, trying to to really model and seek the, the wisdom of the, the Hush Harbors and other missional movements that were led by and primarily centered people of color throughout history. Beautiful. Vinikia, how about you? Yes. So my name is Vinikia Williams. I am currently based out of St. Louis, Missouri, by way of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So I do have that MC connection and the role that I play within the Liberating Church Project is running a lot of the comms and helping tell the story in a way that's visually pleasing. <laughs> that is what I do. And are you also a part of a faith community in St. Louis? So I'm currently not a part of a, a church or affiliated with a denomination. I do gather with a small group of about 10 or so people and we do life together, study scripture, do that sort of thing, but yeah. not affiliated with a branded organization. And a returning guest, Anthony Smith. Can you introduce yourself to us, Anthony? So I'm based out of uh, Salisbury, North Carolina. I pastor a church called Mission House that is a formerly a new church, but we've been in our community for about 10 years now, uh, just embedded in the very fabric of our neighborhoods, just representing the transformative presence and power of the gospel in our community. And so which has led to many different things, different activities, different kinds of work, 
in the world in which we live. And so uh, my role with Liberating Church is to assist with the comms uh, as best I can, and also uh, just to be a resource uh, because our community mission house is one of the communities along with the good neighbor movement uh, that is represented as a part of as, as trying to or striving to or in many ways already embodying uh, what we're calling a liberating church or a 21st century hush harbor mm. and so part of my role is to, is to also be a theological ecclesiological uh, resource to that work so i'm wondering where to start liberatingchurch.org is what caught my attention online and in particular an article that Brandon wrote but we've already mentioned this term hush harbors a few times and so I wonder if we maybe just want to put our finger on that right away and just say can you give us some context um, historically and currently what do you mean when you use this term hush harbor for me you know um, I studied the hush harbors in undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill as a historical uh, historical phenomenon. Uh, we, we studied um, Albert Rabatel's classic text, mm-hmm. Slave Religion, um, that really kind of set the standard for research and um, telling the story about the Hush Harbors. And what they were, they were secret gatherings, often out in the wilderness, um, off the plantation, where enslaved Africans would uh, worship and blend both the the their a particular interpretation a, a liberative interpretation of the gospel and of the scripture with their native indigenous uh, religious practices and beliefs, and then they would also organize for social transformation. And uh, yeah, and you know, I don't want to tell it all, right? Because there's so much to, there's so much to share. But that's a, that's a pretty basic definition. And for us, part of what we have been trying to grapple with the liberating church is to bring the hush harbors into the present moment and say, what might the hush harbors speak to us? What kind of ecclesiological, missiological vision mm-hmm. might they have for how we do church, especially in light of the, the particular crises that we face um, in our society and in the church? Yeah. And how might that, how might that both interrogate how we've been doing church and how we might be creative in doing new forms of church um, in the present moment and in the future. And so when we talk about the hush harbors in the present, what we try to do is draw from that history and then also frame it as a liberating church. So when we say mm-hmm. liberating church, we are paying homage to hush harbors and also trying to riff off of that, mm-hmm. um, to improvise off of that um, for the present, the present moment. Is it fair to say that when hush harbors come onto the scene, so to speak, um, that that was in a moment when in the antebellum South, that slaveholders were not wanting the slaves to actually participate in Christian tradition? That's a good question. They were wanting them to participate in Christian tradition. I mean, in many ways, they had opportunities mm-hmm. to engage in Christian worship and Christian practice according to a particular interpretation of Christianity that was disguising itself as orthodox, as normative, as um, universal. And so when slaves and enslaved Africans had the opportunity to worship on the plantation, often in integrated churches. They, uh, but then they also had the opportunity to worship um, on the plantation where a, a, a preacher that was um, sort of under the, the tutelage or supervision of white ministers and white plantation, uh, white masters, they could worship in that space too. And, and so there was, there was 
plentiful opportunities, and some might say, for them to engage in Christian worship, Christian practice, um, but they still stole away. And that's, that's precisely what we are um, grappling with. Why did they feel the need to leave from that institutionalized normative space of what would be, have, been, have been considered orthodox worship, yet an orthodox understanding of Christian faith at that time? I think I know how you would answer this, but I remember 20, 25 years ago reading uh, Slave Religion and my eyes just being open to like, wow, there's this whole thread of Christian practice that is not informed by the white supremacist practices of the slaveholding South that I have never heard of. But I've also found it difficult to find other resources that talk about that important history from my perspective of the church in North America. Why is there so little academic work around hush harbors? <laughs> I think he's pointing at you, Anthony. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. V, did you want to go? You want to well, no, I, just, I, wanted to, I wanted to throw out, um, well, v. I remember that, that, that. Oh, V, sorry. Stephen Ray brought up something when we had him on the call. We asked him this same question at, our, at one of our last group meetings. And um, I'm struggling to remember exactly what he said, but we were wrestling with this. So at some point, I, I, I want us to recall some of that and wrestle with some of what he said. I'm going to try to look it up on the notes just to make sure. So yeah, y'all go ahead and toss out some ideas there. I will say that the reason why even this past May, I just graduated from a seminary. I will not say which one. And this was never brought up within um, the tradition of the church and mm -hmm. the church in North America. Um, and so when you're looking to elitists who only view intellect and knowledge as being like penultimate when it comes from a white male perspective, you're going to have a hard time then finding resources, especially in a tradition that's mostly oral. You won't mm -hmm. find a lot of a lot of written texts on this, but there are people who are telling the stories, who are teaching their children's and children and other people's children what these things are happening. And so it just so happened that maybe somebody thought we should put pen to paper and mm -hmm. do this work. And so I'm thankful that in recent years, there's been a resurgence of just research on the topic, but I would say that's why mm -hmm. um, you, you wouldn't know a lot of these things and you wouldn't see it on the Barnes Noble's bestseller book list. So even if it hasn't shown up in academic work um, in seminaries, is it fair to say that the Hush Harbor movement in the antebellum South has been informing the black church tradition throughout the ages? So for me, coming into this conversation, I come to this conversation as somebody rooted in uh, black Pentecostalism and a very organic form of that, uh, which is informed by all kind of uh, Africanisms and mm -hmm. African cosmology, uh, spirit baptism, spirit possession. And so for me, my entry into this is, rather, is very organic. And so being a pastor in this context, you know, I've always been a part of communities that are out in the country, uh, or communities that are hidden way, tucked away in so-called urban spaces, storefront uh, churches. Uh, they're oftentimes in the margins so-called margins of our community. This is a lot of the spaces that I inhabit even now. What I find in those spaces are people where the spirit scenes are carved out. And I'm not talking about places that are without hierarchy, without all kind of some of the things that we would challenge today as far as 
um, patriarchy and so forth and so on, because some mm-hmm. of that stuff is present. I think because we live in the West and other people were here. But there's something about some of these spaces that uh, defy the way that the world is structured. You know, you got folk in a lot of these spaces that I inhabit that some of them may not have health care, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but all they have is God. All they have is the spirit. All they have is the elders of the church to pour oil on them and pray for them. And so for me, this is very, it's a very, it starts off for me very pneumatological. It starts off very spiritual for me. And so for me, I've had to learn how to become more sophisticated and to grab language to describe my experience. So for me, coming into this, it was very existential. And as I began to gain uh, the language around what we now describing as liberating church, 21st century hush harbors, being in those spaces, being in those places, I began to ask a question. And me and you've talked about this before. I'm like, man, where are the intentional places that are similar to places like the Latin American based communities? Right? Yes. Where's the correlation? Where's the analog in North America? Um, because, you know, one of the things I've always been very envious about in Latin American based communities is that it's not wholly academic, it's not wholly scholarly. It's a real organic, organic, place based ecclesiology, spirit-led type communities in these, in the so-called belly of empire, right? Mm. And so for me, Hush Harbors represent that, going back to what Brandon was talking about, is how you, the spirit would carve out these spaces on the edges of plantation religion to create space for human freedom, affirmation of our culture, especially, as we both know, if we read the work of people like uh, theologian Willie Jennings, who talks about how Christendom uh, would demonize, would demonize the Africanisms mm-hmm. of our people. And so Hush Harbors were places where we could engage in our inheritance as people who have been kissed by the sun, that we could mm-hmm. affirm and be who we were uh, before we even came to this land. And also at the same time, uh, be caught up in this spirit, this uh, the spirit of the risen Christ, uh, you know, so for me, Hush Harbors really name a space that the spirit has carved out. And we have these traditions, these oral traditions, like V was talking about, these traditions and these practices, and these rituals, from the ring shout to the, the way we even testify, um, the way that which we even preach, the way in which we uh, serve and help each other, the least of these. Yeah, although mm-hmm. that answers any questions or anything. And, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing up how, what are the ways in which um, Hush Harper's influenced the contemporary Black church. I think I think everything Anthony just mentioned around these practices, I think you still see that. That's what makes them so, so potent and so powerful is that they, they survived by virtue of practice, by virtue of memory, by virtue of an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, in many ways hasn't been written down. And yet at the same time, it has been written down. Right, like if you pick up anything about black preaching, you are reading about the hush harbors. Now, of course, it's being—I don't want to say improved upon, but it's it's being adapted and contextualized for whatever kind of moment people are writing and trying to articulate what the gospel uh, being preached is in in a particular time. And so, I do see that. I, and I, and you know, we probably could name specific churches that that we are familiar with that um, that we feel like are an analog or are correlated to the hush harbors. And at the same time, what I want to push, push on too. And this is what we, uh, we were able to have a conversation with one of our elders around this was that at the same time, the hush harbors have also been 
sub subjected to a, pr a process of assimilation and respectability that comes along with um, the stabilizing of whiteness um, yeah. in this country over many, many generations. Mm -hmm. And so you, you take even the formation of black denominations, for example, part of what made the Hush Harbors what they were, and, and this is part of Albert Rabito's argument, is that they ain't need no damn denomination. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they just did it. And that was That's right. what they were, Amen. you know? But, um, but then, of course, with, the, with, with all sorts of converging pro sort of um, experiences around the, um, the revivalist tradition, the evangelical tradition, et cetera, and a lot of the uh, opportunities for Black preachers to gain access to um, the clergy, mm -hmm. um, th there then became these requirements around education and institutionalization that frankly meant that some of what the Hush Harbors meant practically on the ground had to either be silenced or it had to remain invisibilized. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so this is where it becomes really interesting in that you, you also see a lot of Hush Harbor tradition outside of what we might call the institutional church. So mm -hmm. my grandma, for example, I got to make sure she's not going to watch this. So don't, don't be, don't, don't, don't be, don't be spreading this all over. So now nah, my, my grandma ain't got social media. Tell it. But you know, when my grandma is, 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 cooking up certain types of recipes in the kitchen. And I ain't talking about food that you eat. I'm talking about certain practices around voodoo, hoodoo, mm. right? That, um, yeah, you know, she, she is, um, in essence, practicing Hush Harbor religion, folk religion that she learned, she did not learn from the Baptist church that she grew up in. Matter of fact, they would call her Burn out on sage. some of that stuff right now. Exactly, burning sage. Mm. So, um, so what, what you find is that the, the Hush Harbors have had an influence both in, you know, uh, both the kind of institutionalization of the black church, but as much if not even more within the sort of folk culture, often in the South, um, su Southern black folk culture. And part of what we're trying to do with the Liberating Church Project is to say, how do we reclaim and reconnect with those traditions and practices that often within the black church, the institutional black church, not all of them, but like over, like by and large, right? Like it's seen as um, secular, as unholy, right? As heretical. Um, mm. How do we grapple with those as a return to um, our inheritance, as Anthony spoke to? Um, and that actually within, though, within that, um, that Sankofa, right? Like within that return, we might actually get closer to what it means for us to be um, authentically church, mm. uh, separated from these processes of um, divide and conquer, these processes of displacement that come along with empire and white supremacy. Oh, man, there's so many different things I want to ask you guys about. Okay, I'm going to just nerd out for a second. Are you all familiar with Voris Nunley's book, Keeping It Hushed, who draws a an analog between the barbershop, the black barbershop and, and the hush harbors. Yeah. And, and, and do you, you agree with that, that comparison? Yo, the barbershop is special. <laughs> the black barbershop is special. Now, you know, not hiding all, in plain sight. Hi, yeah. Hidden in plain sight. Yo, this is what I mean in terms of like, I'm trying to think of some examples here. I yeah. I Go ahead. I was just, you know, I, I'll never forget, uh, this, is, this, is, this is just a sort of a quick story. So I'll never forget when Black Panther came out, right? Mm -hmm. And so I went into the barbershop 
and I served notice on all the barbers and side brothers. I said, I'm calling a two week memorial. Don't sell any bootleg copies of Black Panther. <laughs> right? When the two weeks is up, then you can, you know, do what you got to do. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it is the reason why. Like, because the thing is, you know, if you're thinking about Black barbershop culture, uh, there are those kinds of activities taking place. There's secret, stole away kind of activities that defy uh, the capitalist kind of uh, corporate control of, mm. of resources. And so the thing is, is like, you got people who are, uh, you know, working class, you got poor folk, right? They ain't got money, to, they ain't got $15 to go to the movies, right? They, they need to see Black Panther, but they can't afford to go to the movie theater to right. see Black Panther. Yeah, or they want to buy something else, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so like, it's, it's an interesting space because it's like, it's not seen as abnormal to do that in that space, mm-hmm. right? But if they were to go out and shout in the rooftop, somebody probably call the sheriff, they probably call the police, they engage in pirating laws, they're breaking pirating laws, all this kind of stuff. But this, like, so in many ways, hush harbors were, in many ways, secretive, illegal spaces, in many ways like that. And, then, and the other thing, too, is you can watch, like, you can watch a bootleg copy of a movie in a barbershop with the other brothers in there, and y'all sitting there talking about it. You're mm-hmm. having a conversation about the movie. Everybody's having their own little commentary about it. During the movie. Uh, yeah, during the movie. Like, well, people get heads cut and things like that. So you kind of have, it's, I never thought of it that way. But yeah, in many ways, I can see the correlation. Like, I can see the analog mm-hmm. between the barbers. And there's some other stuff happening in that space, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and, and not to leave the sisters out, because the truth is it happens in the, in the, in the beauty salon, oh, too. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. Oh, the, yeah. communal, the communal sharing, the communal interpretation of all sorts of meaning making that we're mm-hmm. trying to have yeah. around life that you get better in the barbershop and beauty salon sometimes than you get at church on Sunday. Now, but here's what's going to say. That's real, though. Most of the, That's real. But like, but, but like, we never saw the barbershop and the beauty salon, even the preachers, as like, as discontinuous, so right? Like, like, they were part and parcel of, of like, our journey, our spiritual journey. I was going to say, hilariously, it wasn't until I was in college where I saw people whose full-time job was a pastor. So Mm. I saw my pastor, who was also the barber, like he is doing ministry outside the church on Sunday. And so it does continue into the week. It does bleed over and those lines are blurred. Mm. So that is a very real thing. I don't know if you all saw I think it was maybe a year or so ago, there was an article talking about black millennials and the church and how brunch is now the new gathering space. Mm. And so even to talk about black brunch and similar to a beauty, uh, a beauty salon or the barbershop, there are these conversations that are happening. And I love what you said about meaning making, because here are the spaces where we're saying, here's the issue, here's a narrative that's being um, presented here are our interpretations of it, and here are our possible solutions, which was everything that's happening within these spaces that we're talking about. Mm. And yeah, so I, I love how um, nowadays we're, we're making these new spaces. And so I don't know if your questions are then going to go into why there's this new need for this. We've spoken about the Black church, but then to speak about those, those of us who... Um, didn't graduate from the black church, but slowly drifted away into these um, white majority or multicultural spaces mm-hmm. uh, and believing that these, these academics, those who were parsing scripture and had their Greek and Hebrew words, and they were like, this is great. 
fewer people who take scripture seriously um, than to find even prior to 2014 and the murder of Mike Brown that uh, this isn't really for us. Mm. And so the movement around especially the multicultural church, um, I like to tell people this isn't a new thing. Mm-hmm. Like Brandon had mentioned, the the early churches in the South were actually <laughs> multicultural churches. They right. had to play in the back, put them in the balcony, and still there's this division and there's this um, normalizing of whiteness, which is what we're seeing. And it's what um, people like myself are now moving away from. There's this act of decolonizing your theology, your faith, and your practices and saying, there's something true and there's a way in which the ancestors guide me. And so getting back to this truth, I might not find within um, maybe not even my grandmother's church. And I'm surely not going to find it within this cool up and coming like mega church. So (laughs) where are the spaces that I steal away to where um, my spiritual needs and and my, my need for a true intentional community, those things are met. And so I see more people doing that these days. You can learn more about Liberating Church at liberatingchurch.org. And mark your calendars. They will be convening a conference on September 11th and 12th of this year. You can find more links from this episode in the show notes at digitaljasonevans.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and a review. Thanks to Adam Powell for creating the music for our new thing. You can find more of Adam's creations at bestfriendscreative.com. Thanks to Vanikia, Brandon, Anthony, and everyone on the Liberating Church team. And thanks to you for listening.